This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Jesuit Missions A Chronicle of the Cross in the Wilderness by Thomas Guthrie Marquis. Chapter 5 The Return to Huronia. After the Treaty of Saint Germain en Laye, which restored to France all the posts in America won by the adventurers of Canada, the French king took steps to repossess Quebec. But by way of compensation to the Cayennes for their losses in the war, Emery de Cayenne was commissioned to take over the post from the Kirks and hold it for one year, with trading rights. Accordingly, in April 1632, Cayenne sailed from Enfleur and he carried a dispatch under the seal of Charles I, King of England, addressed to Louis Kirk at Quebec, commanding him to surrender the captured fort. On the 5th of July, the few French inhabitants at Quebec broke out into wild cries of joy as they saw Caen's ship approaching under full sail, at its peak the white flag sprinkled with golden lilies and when they learned that the vessel brought two Jesuit fathers, their hearts swelled with inexpressible rapture. During the three years of English possession, the Catholics had been without priests, and they hungered for their accustomed forms of worship. The priests, now arriving, were Paul Lejeune, the new superior general, and Anne de Nui, with a lay brother, Gilbert Burel. They hastened ashore, and were followed by the inhabitants, to the home of the widow Hebert, the only substantial residence in the colony, where, in the ceremony of the Mass, they celebrated the renewal of the Canadian mission. Quebec was in a sad condition. The English, knowing of the negotiation for its return to the French, had left the ground uncultivated and the buildings in ruins. The missionaries found the residence of Notre-Dame de Agnes plundered and partly destroyed but they went to work cheerfully to restore it, and before autumn it was quite habitable. Meanwhile, Lejeune had begun his labors tentatively as a teacher. His pupils were an Indian lad and a little negro, the latter a present from the English to Madame Hibert. The class grew larger. During the winter a score of children answered the call of Lejeune's bell, and sat at his feet learning the credo, the Ave, and the Paternoster, which he had translated into Algonquin rhymes. In order to learn the Indian language, Lejeune was himself a pupil. His teacher, a Montagne, named Pierre, a worthless wretch who had been in France and had learned some French. Lejeune passed the winter of 1632-33 to 33 in teaching, studying, and ministering to the inhabitants at the trading post. Save for a short period he had the companionship of Nui, a devoted missionary eager to play his part in the field, but, as we have seen, without the necessary vigor of mind or body. Though Nui had failed in Huronia, he thought he might succeed on the St. Lawrence, and in the autumn, just as the first snows were beginning to whiten the ground, when a band of friendly Montagnes encamped near the residence, invited him to their wintering grounds, he bade farewell to Lejeune, and vanished with the Indians into the northern forests but the rigors of the wigwams were too much for him, and after three weeks he returned to Notre-Dame d'Agnes in an exhausted condition. 
In the meantime, the hundred associates were getting ready to enter into the enjoyment of their Canadian domain. But now, without the hopeful ardor and exalted purpose which had characterized their first ill-fated expedition, the guiding hand in the revival of the colony under the feudal suzerainty of Richelieu's company was Champlain. He was appointed on March 1, 1633, lieutenant general in New France. With jurisdiction throughout all the extent of the St. Lawrence and other rivers. Twenty-three days later he sailed from Dieppe with three armed ships, the St. Pierre, the St. Jean, and the Don de Dieu. These ships carried two hundred persons, among them the Jesuit fathers Jean de Brebeuf and Anemon Massé. At Cape Breton they were joined by two more Jesuits, Antoine Daniel, And Ambrosi de Vos, who had gone there the year before. There were no recollects in the company, for, greatly to their disappointment, the recollects were now barred from the colony. For this, the Jesuits have been unjustly blamed. It was, however, wholly due to the policy of the hundred associates. At one of their meetings, Jean de Lausanne, the president, Afterwards, a governor of New France formally protested against the return of the recollects. The associates desired to economize and did not wish to support two religious orders in the colony, and so the mendicant recollects were excluded. The vessels appeared at Quebec on the 23rd of May and landed their passengers amid shouts of welcome from the settlers, soldiers, and Indians. Presently, Champagne's lieutenant. Duplessis Bouchard, on behalf of the hundred associates, received the keys of the fort and habitation from Emery de Caen, and at that moment ended the regime of the Huguenot traders in Canada. Thenceforth, whether for good or for evil, New France was to be Catholic. During the English occupation, the Indians had almost ceased to visit Quebec. At first, the fickle savages had welcomed the invaders. For they ever favored a winner, and had thronged about the fort, expecting presents galore from the strong people who had ousted the French. But instead of presents, the English gave them only kicks and curses, and so they held aloof. Now, however, on hearing that Champlain had returned, the Indian dwellers along the Ottawa River and in Huronia flocked to the post. Hardly more than two months after his arrival, a fleet of a hundred and forty canoes, With about seven hundred Indians swept with the ebb tide to the base of the rock that frowned above the habitation and the dilapidated warehouses. Drawing their heavily laden craft ashore, the chiefs greeted Champlain and proceeded to set up their camp huts on the strand. Among them were many warriors now grown old who had been with him in the attack on the Iroquois in 1615. There were some too who had listened to the teachings of Brebeuf. For the eager missionaries, this was an opportunity not to be lost, and resolved to go up with the Hurons who willingly assented. Brebeuf, Daniel, and de Vost got ready for the journey to Huronia. On the eve of departure, the three missionaries brought their packs to the strand and lodged for the night in the trader's storehouse, hard by the Indian encampment. But they had an enemy aboard. All in this party were not Hurons. Some were Ottawas from Allumette Island, under a one-eyed chief, Le Borne. 
This wily redskin wished for trouble between the Hurons and the French. In order that his tribe might get a monopoly of the Ottawa route, and carry all the goods from the nations above down to the St. Lawrence. At this time, an Algonquin of La Petite Nation, a tribe living south of Alumet Island, was held at Quebec for murdering a Frenchman. His friends were seeking his release, but Champlain deemed his execution necessary as a lesson to the Indians. Le Borne rose to the occasion. He went among the Hurons, urging them to refuse passage to the Jesuits, warning them that since Champlain would not pardon the Algonquin, it would be dangerous to take the black robes with them. The angry tribesmen of the murderer would surely lay in wait for the canoes. The black robes would be slain or made prisoners, and there would be war on the Hurons too. The argument was effective. Champlain would not release the prisoner. And the Jesuits were forced to return to their abode, while the Indians embarked and disappeared. There were now six fathers at Notre Dame de Agnes. They kept incessantly active, improving their residence, cultivating the soil, studying the Indian languages, and ministering to the settlers and to the red men who had pitched their wigwams along the St. Charles and the St. Lawrence in the vicinity of Quebec. In spite of Nui's failure among the Montagnais, the courageous Lejeune resolved personally to study the Indian problem at first hand, and in the autumn of 1633 he joined a company of redskins going to their hunting ground on the upper St. John. During five months among these savages he suffered from cold, heat, smoke, and dogs, and bore in silence the foul language of a medicine man who had made the missionary's person and teachings subjects of mirth. At times, too, he was on the verge of death from hunger. Early in the spring he returned to Quebec, after having narrowly escaped drowning as he crossed the ice-laden St. Lawrence in a frail canoe. He had made no converts, but he had gained valuable experience. It was now more evident than ever that among the roving Algonquins the mission could make little progress. In 1634 the Hurons visited the colony in small numbers, for Iroquois scalping parties haunted the trails, and a pestilence had played havoc in the Huron villages. Those who came to trade this year gathered at Three Rivers, and thither went to Brebeuf, Daniel, and Devost to seek once more a passage to Huronia. The Indians at first stolidly refused to take them, but at length, after a liberal distribution of presents, the three priests and four engages were permitted to embark, each priest in a separate canoe. They had the usual rough experiences. Davost and Daniel, who had no acquaintance with the Huron language, fared worse than Brebeuf. Davost was abandoned among the Ottawas of Alumet Island, his baggage plundered and his books and papers thrown into the river. Daniel, too, was deserted by his savage conductors. Both, however, found means to continue the journey. When Brebeuf reached Atuacha on the 5th of August, his Indian guides, in haste to get to their villages, suddenly vanished into the forest. But he knew the spot well. Toanch, his old mission, was but a short distance away. Thither he hurried, only to find the village in ruins. Nothing remained of the cabin in which he had spent three years but the charred poles of the framework. 
A well-worn path leading through the forest told him that a village could not be far distant, and he followed this trail till he came to a cluster of cabins. This was a new village, Tiendioita, to which the inhabitants of his old Toanche had moved. It was twilight as the Indians caught sight of the stalwart, black-robed figure emerging from the forest, and the shout went up, "Ekon has come again! Presently all the inhabitants were about him shouting and gesticulating for joy. Daniel and Devos arrived during the month, emaciated and exhausted, but rejoicing. The missionaries found shelter in the spacious cabin of a hospitable Huron, Awandoe, where they remained until the 19th of September. Meanwhile they had selected the village of Ihonatiria, a short distance away from the northern extremity of the peninsula, as a centre for the mission. There a cabin was quickly erected, the men of the town on Rio vying with the men of Tiendioita in the task. This residence, called by Brebeuf St. Joseph, was thirty-five feet long and twenty wide, and contained a storehouse, a living-room and school, and a chapel. For three years this humble abode was to be the headquarters of the missionaries in Huronia. During the first year of the mission all went smoothly. To the Indians the fathers were medicine men of extraordinary powers. Moreover, the hired men who came with them had arquebuses that would be valuable in case of attack in force by the Iroquois. Objects which the missionaries possessed inspired awe in the savages. A hand-mill for grinding corn, a clock, a magnifying lens, and a picture of the Last Judgment were supposed to be okies of the white men. For a time eager audiences crowded the little cabin. Few converts were made, however, for the present the savages were too firmly wedded in their custom and superstitions to accept the new okies. Unfortunately, in 1635, a drought smote the land, and the medicine men used this calamity to discredit their rivals, the black robes. According to these fakirs, it was the red cross on the Jesuit chapel which frightened away the bird of thunder and caused the drought. Brebeuf, to disarm suspicion, had the cross painted white, yet the thunderbird still held aloof, and the incantations and drummings of the sorcerers availed not to bring rain. Brebeuf then advised the Indians to try the effect of an appeal to his god. In despair they consented. A procession was formed, and the priests said masses and prayers. The result was dramatic. Almost immediately a sudden refreshing rain deluged the ground. The crops were saved, and the medicine men humiliated. Still no perceptible religious progress was made. Though children came to the residences to be instructed by the black robes, they were attracted more by the beads, raisins, and prunes. which they received as inducements to come back, than by the lessons in Christian truth. For the most part the elders listened attentively to the missionaries, but to the question of laying aside their superstitions and accepting Christianity they replied, It is good for the French, but we are another people, with different customs.